Okay, uh, good evening everybody. Welcome to the LSE. Welcome to this event on gender and the brain. Today's event is part of the Consilient series uh, organised by the Forum for European Philosophy. The aim of the series being to foster interdisciplinary communication and mutual understanding by identifying common questions and seeking to integrate knowledge from different areas of expertise, in this case philosophy and neuroscience. Uh, I'm Jonathan Birch. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Philosophy, Logic and Scientific Method here at LSE. I'm also a fellow of the Forum for European Philosophy, and I'm delighted to be introducing uh, tonight's speakers and chairing uh, the discussion afterwards. Uh, first of all, we'll have Professor Gina Rippon, who is Professor of Cognitive Neuroimaging at Aston University. And then following that, we'll have Professor John Dupre, uh, Professor of the Philosophy of Science at the University of Exeter, also Director of Vigenis, uh, the Centre for the Study of the Life Sciences, and in 20, uh, 2013 was also Visiting Professor of Gender Studies at the University of Cambridge. So the format for the event tonight will be as follows. First of all, we'll have uh, Gina talking to us for around 15 minutes. Then we'll have a talk from John, who will also talk to us for around 15 minutes. Following those two initial talks, we'll have a panel discussion uh, among the three of us for around 30 minutes. And then in the last part of the, the event, we'll invite questions from the audience. So I'll just hand over to Gina in a moment, but let's uh, please welcome her. Thanks. the introduction, Jonathan. Nice to see so many people here. Um, now I've found the keyboard, hopefully we'll get going. Um, okay, so tonight's discussion is about gender and the brain, and as I'll mention later, I think the choice of the term gender rather than sex in the brain or sex gender in the brain may in itself be uh, a significant uh, term that we should talk about. Uh, as Jonathan mentioned, I work at uh, Aston Brain Centre, and uh, what we have there, if I can use my... Yes, we do? No, that's not going to work. Okay. We're lucky enough to have a, a big imaging centre, which has got all the standard imaging techniques. And my role there is to use uh, fMRI, where we can look at where things are happening, uh, EEG, when they're happening, uh, and a rather unusual setup, um, MEG, which is looking at the magnetic waves, uh, magnetic fields associated with brain activity. So together we have a, a pretty good package which lets us look at um, when, where, and what is happening in the brain as a function and as a cognitive neuroscientist of, of different sorts of behaviour. And so using these techniques, I can generate all sorts of wonderful images of the brain. I can look at, um, if we look at the, the top right-hand side, I can look at what happens when somebody's looking at a picture. I can see how the brain activity changes over milliseconds over time. I can look at where that activity might be happening. I can map it onto strange uh, models of the brain, and I can look at pathways. And this was really, um, I kind of started, uh, in fact, quite locally to here. I was at Birkbeck College quite a long time ago. Um, I did my PhD there, and I was very interested in brain activity in abnormal states. Um, I did my PhD on schizophrenia, in fact. But I was very much at the sort of tech end of, of brain imaging. Um, in fact, in those days, it was called psychophysiology, and using very crude techniques. It's only really in the last 10, 20 years that we've had access to the wonderful brain imaging techniques that can produce these sort of images. And as has been suggested, and we'll cover again later, um, 
the, the seductive allure of these images is perhaps part of the problem. They look wonderfully easy to interpret. They think at last... Technology has advanced to the state that we can actually really see what's happening in the brain. We can look at what people are doing while they're thinking, solving problems, speaking, whatever. We can spot the individual differences between them. Um, and there has been a debate about this being misused. Okay, now, when I moved to Aston University, I had access to all this wonderful equipment, but I was also asked to see if I could see how neuroscience was actually contributing to um, the good of, of humanity um, or not. And very soon it became clear that neuroscience is a wonderful... Um, uh, has a wonderful attraction to the media. You only have to put neuroscience in front of anything and people think, oh, this is really true. So we have, coming up shortly, Tory voters found to have larger primitive lobe in the brain. Um, bankers in the neuroscience of greed. Neuroscientists should have been consulted and there'd have been no uh, economic crash. And even, and that is genuinely something I found on the website, the neuroscience of kitchen cabinetry, so that you can actually wire somebody up and tell them what kind of um, kitchen they would like. So some lovely thing, okay, it's really nice that I'm doing neuroscience that's clearly very popular, kind of harmless, you hope. But then I started looking more closely at the kind of literature that was associated with these kind of, um, and I have to say Daily Mail, and hope there's nobody from the Daily Mail here. I usually insult the Daily Mail and somebody puts up their hand and says, I write for the Daily Mail. So apologies in advance. I noticed that you could actually categorise these materials in two ways. First of all, I call it neurotrash, which is a bit about the, the rather hapless reporters kind of being sent something and thinking, oh, look, brains are different, that's fantastic, I can write up my copy for Thursday morning or whatever. Um, and generally speaking, they're people who clearly don't understand how neuroimaging works, how the brain works. Slightly more worryingly, generate the sort of brains which I've called um, neurotrash, the sort of books which I've called um, neurotrash, why men don't listen and women can't read maps, for example. Um, the whole men are from Mars, women are from Venus hokum, which we'll come back to. Really, you could say kind of snake oil peddlers. But also, rather uh, more recently, along uh, with Cordelia Fine, um, somebody who's written a fantastic book called Delusions of Gender that I've been working with, we've noticed that there's also some problems within the neuroimaging community itself, where people are actually using um, stereotypes to explain their findings and are therefore inadvertently, one hopes, um, contributing to the whole kind of production of neuroscience, uh, of neurotrash. So really what I'm saying is that we need to be careful um, how people interpret what's going on. And then, of course, you get the Daily Mail-type article, female brains really are different to male minds. Interesting distinction there in the Daily Mail, I thought, with women possessing better recall and men excelling at maths. This was an interesting, complete misunderstanding of a paper reviewing the diminishing gender gap in particular skills over time. Also, more worryingly, um, we should give up encouraging girls to do science. So you get Glasgow University professor Dr. Gisbert Sturt, who I have spoken to and said I think you should know better, who actually says that we can take neuroscience findings and say actually the government shouldn't be spending a lot of time trying to encourage girls to do science because constitutionally they're not able to do so. And you think... This is the 21st century. This sounds like the kind of 18th, 19th century hokum which went around, you know, women shouldn't, do, shouldn't be educated because they'll no longer be able to reproduce and will go mad, etc. <laughs> OK, so the kind of thing I was 
thinking to myself, right, we really need to find out what's going on here. We need to understand how neuroscience is looking at sex, gender, and the brain. There's a really nice paper by Daphne Joel where she talks about 3G sex, and she says there's a lovely heading, Does Your Brain Have Sex?, which is translated from um, Hebrew, and I thought it was quite an interesting way of, of talking about the brain. But the idea is that we think that because... Genetically, there's a difference between males and females, which determines what kind of gonads they'll have, which determine what kind of genitals they'll have, that this also applies to the brain. Of course, your brain, if you're a male, you have a male brain. If you're a female, you have a female brain, and there are quite marked differences between them. And then further down the line, you think, well, if you've got different brains, then clearly you behave differently. And there's this wonderful kind of dichotomy which people assume and which you certainly find informs um, the, the kind of uh, neurotrash that I've talked about. But what we're really talking about is these hugely overlapping distributions here. And I won't talk you through them in detail because I can see Jonathan already looking at his watch. Um, but I'll say that be aware that when we talk about differences, we don't mean A over here and B over here, males over here, females over here. Hugely overlapping distribution of scores. The distribution at the top is actually of heights. Most people would agree, okay, most men are taller than most women. But even there, you can see quite an overlap. If you look at the, uh, the graph below... Those are hugely overlapping scores. You really, if you took one of those scores, you really couldn't say, oh, well, that'll be a man who scored that, or that'll be a female. What's really important to realise is that kind of cognitive differences <coughs> my colleagues and I are talking about or saying we must look at properly, differences in uh, cognitive gender skills or gendered skills such as uh, visuospatial ability, memory, language, etc., even in what appears to most people's minds really well-established differences, the difference is tiny. The similarities between males and females are much greater than the differences between them, and that's something that people forget. And it's a real challenge for neuroscience to try and un unpick that. And there's a very nice paper come out recently uh, by Reese and Carruthers talking about whether or not we should really be thinking of categories. Why don't we just think of about a dimension and see where males and females fall along that dimension? And the paper's nicely called Black and White or Shades of Grey. So really that's something that needs to inform any kind of thought about gender, not, not just the brain. But moving on to the brain in particular, when we talk about gender neuroscience, neuroscience looking at gender, neuroscience studying gender, feminist scholars trying to unpack what neuroscientists are saying, etc. Are people like me part of the problem or part of the solution? And this comes back to the idea of, of the seductive allure of neuroscience. We do have this wonderful kind of... Um, image of a brain imager uh, being able to read the mind and it's something that a lot of people think I mean it's quite nice in a way that people say well you can read my mind it used to be if you said you were a psychologist that's what they said now with brain imaging people are quite anxious not to become a participant in any of my studies because they assume I can look at the screen and say I know what you're thinking <laughs> unfortunately that's not the case and I'm sure some of you have come across this wonderful image the dead salmon the dead salmon that launched a thousand sceptics, whereby neuroimages 
Confessions of a Neuroimager said, you must be aware that the images we produce are not kind of real-time things that scroll across our screens as we sit you in the scanner. We take all of those electrical signals, magnetic wave signals, blood flow changes, we run them through huge amounts of normative um, template matching, smoothing, statistical analysis, thresholding, even choosing the colours that we're going to use in order to show where changes are. And somebody showed by putting a dead salmon in an fMRI system and showing it happy and sad faces, you can adjust the thresholds appropriately and you can, surprise, surprise, find a nice little area in the brain which you can say, this proves that there is an area in the brain of a dead salmon which allows it to tell the difference between happy and sad faces. <laughs> so that sounds like really shouldn't diss my own, uh, my own uh, discipline, but that's something that we, we need to be careful of. The other aspect is the idea that we're brain mappers, that sooner or later we'll have a nice little atlas of the, of the brain and that we'll be able to look at images like the one I've just shown there and say, oh, I know what that is. I can go from that image and I can say that person is a female um, trying to read a map or that is a male trying to be emotional, etc. <laughs> It would be wonderful, possibly, if that was the case. It might make our lives a lot easier. It might make grant-giving bodies look at us with much less scepticism. But unfortunately, that's not the true. true. We now know the brain, parts of the brain are involved as you would expect in, in a highly complex organ like that. There's no very few single parts of the brain which only do one thing, and particularly as you go higher up the scale, the cognitive scale, parts of the brain are involved in all sorts of different activities. And just as an example, I can show that uh, slide that I've just shown to a whole group of neuroscientists. I've tried it several times. Do you know what's going on there? People might have a guess and say, oh, a bit of activity in the anterior cingulate, some in the insula, somebody's having a good time. Um, and there are some somewhat um, nefarious suggestions as to what I was imaging when I got that particular image. In fact, the answer is that they were eating chocolate, the people who were, um, whose brains were being imaged at that point were eating chocolate. Nobody's actually been able to guess that. So part of the problem is that it looks like we can read minds, it looks like we can map minds. But more importantly, and this is, you know, almost if I could only have one slide, this is the one I'd show. What we can now talk about now that we couldn't do in the 18th, 19th, even 20th century, we now know that the brains are what we call plastic. The plastic brain, neuroplasticity. I'm sure some of you, have, most of you are familiar with the taxi driver study where images showed that um, males who'd been through the knowledge, who'd learned the knowledge, had part of their brain, uh, which is lit up on the uh, image there, lit up is a term I shouldn't use but we'll come back to that um, where it showed that that part of the brain was larger in individuals who'd had this very intensive visuospatial training. The image at the bottom is in fact also of jugglers which said we can take people before they've decided to do something, we can run them through a particular task of varying um, complexity and show how the brain changes What's also very important is that you can take individuals who show a deficit in a particular skill, run them through a particular training package, which in fact isn't related to the skill, and show that the skill can improve and that as part of that their brains will change. And this is in fact a study of girls uh, compared with boys, so that the girls show deficits in visuospatial skills and spatial cognition. Um, what the uh, experimenters did is ran them through intensive Tetris training for six to eight weeks and showed that there was quite marked differences in brain structure and function and behaviour, so their spatial cognition scores improved. 
Moving along then, the other aspect where neuroscience can contribute to the whole debate about gender in the brain is the fact that it used to be thought biology is destiny. If you, your brain um, patterns, activities, aptitudes were determined by a genetic uh, package that um, you received and from then you were exposed to certain learning experiences, you might benefit from them depending on the structure of your brain. But effectively your brain got bigger, got more connections between it until it, unfortunately about the age of 50 it kind of fell off a cliff and your little grey cells started disappearing. But now we know that the brain is hardwired. I mean medics who were taught five, no, probably longer than that, 20, 30 years ago, would have been told that once a brain cell is damaged, there's nothing you can do about it. We don't grow new brain cells. We don't grow new pathways. All of that has changed. And one of the really important things we can show is that the kind of taxi driver juggling experiences, which would change the brain, um, are also true of much more subtle factors. And the two studies I'm just briefly going to talk about here is, first of all, on the left on your left, um, we have um, a study on stereotype threat. Now, stereotype threat is a social phenomenon whereby if you inform a group of people that they're about to undergo a particular task, and as it happens, the group that they belong to finds that task quite challenging, off you go uh, starting now. Surprise, surprise, that group does less well on the task than it would be expected from the skills that you had from them. This was a very nice study showing that stereotype threat actually also changes. You can change how the brain functions depending on whether you give somebody a negative message. This is a, a mental rotation task. This is where you take a, a two-dimensional object or a representation of a three-dimensional object. Say, okay, we'd like you to see, imagine what it's like if you twist it through 90 degrees, what does it look like on the other side? Females, on average, remembering our overlapping scores, don't do very well on this kind of task. So if you say to them this is a mental rotation task, see if you can manipulate this object, what happens and to, to one group? Then you say to another group, okay, this is a task which is called a perspective-taking task. So instead of trying to manipulate this object, I want you to walk around it. And if you could imagine yourself on the other side of this object, what would it look like? As it happens, females are very good at this task. As you might expect, otherwise I wouldn't have shown you these data. The women who were given, these are three groups of women, the women who were given a positive message showed... Um, uh, did, made many fewer mistakes than the women who were giving a, a negative message and that difference was also reflected in the brain. So the kind of message we get when we're carrying out a cognitive task is really important and can change the brain. The other aspect that I want to draw your attention to is the fact that um, the top uh, image of a brain there is showing which parts of the brain which pathways of the brain underpin different skills that we have and the uh, ones at the, towards the anterior, the front part of the brain are shown to be much more uh, affected by socioeconomic status. So if you look at the functioning of the brain and say, let's have a look at the socioeconomic status of the individual, you show very marked differences um, in the frontal lobe and the temporal areas, depending on the task that's being carried out. <laughs> that effect is much more powerful than gender. So there's something else going on there which is more important to remember. The reason I put the one at the bottom up is because that's also the effect when you, in your perceived socioeconomic status. So independent of where you actually are in the pecking order, if you place yourself somewhere on that ladder when you're asked to say, 
Do you think you're pretty high up the pecking order? Are you better off? Are you worse off? That also affects a particular part of the brain. So what I'm really saying is not only are brains plastic, they're very permeable. They're permeable to the attitudes of those around us. And if those around us or the attitudes of those around us are gendered or we're exposed to gendered experiences, it's decided that as girls we do this, as boys we do that, those can change the brain. And I think it's really important to realise that. I won't go into this one. It's an example which has been torn to shreds in the popular press. It's actually an example of the neuroscientists themselves in contributing this, to this debate by reporting on hugely significant pathways that they'd found. And in fact, the graph there shows the size of the effect size uh, in those pathways. So very tiny overlapping pathways, but the researchers referred to fundamental sex differences. And they also interpreted their data in, friend, in terms of males having better motor and spatial abilities. And that's why the brains at the top were better, because they demonstrated the fact that there was wide pathways across and between the hemispheres. Females have superior memory and social cognition skills, and they explained uh, the orange pathways in those terms. Important to remember, those uh, researchers didn't even measure those skills. They just took some pathways, over-reported the significant differences, and then interpreted them in terms of a stereotype out there which they reached out for and interpreted. So... Gender neuroscience has a problem in terms of how it can be misused, but also in terms of how um, it actually uh, uh, reports things. Now, really what we're trying to say, uh, colleagues of mine, as I say, I'm just bringing to a close now, is that this is something we're really concerned about in terms of ourselves as neuroscientists and our colleagues, and also the message that's getting out there. So rather than assume that any neuroimaging study that you're looking at is in the shaded area, you've got males, females, nicely grouped, nicely separated, easy to score which is which, you run them through a particular task and you get a result, and you, that result goes out, hopefully into frontiers in human neuroscience, or even into the Daily Mail, or both, and you get a big score and your impact for your ref return or whatever. We tell people that you should bear in mind that the people you're looking at have been exposed to all sorts of gendered experiences from the moment they're born, if not before. That their brains are entangled in a world which um, can change the brains themselves. It used to be the thinking that biology was destiny, there was one camp, um, or it's society stupid was the other camp which said that you know, people were forced into the roles by society, nothing to do with their biology. We're now bringing those together. We now know that what's happening in society can have very profound effects on the brain. And that's something which is really important to remember uh, when we're trying to fight against the arguments. If I only have one slide to sum up what I was been talking about, this is a six-year-old... Uh, six-year-old... Um, description of, of, of what brains, people's brains are like. And really, it's everybody's brain is attached to the world. Uh, and I think that's really what I've been trying to say. There is an advert. I'll okay. come back to that. Thanks, Gina. We now move straight on to <laughs> Professor John Dupre. <laughs> Excellent. Okay. Right. 
Um, well, this is, this is a very nice event for me for many reasons, one of which is generally as a philosopher, if I see a panel with two people speaking, I expect the objective is for them to tear one another's arguments to shreds and make the other person look as stupid as possible and thereby look as clever as possible. I won't try and gender this um, description of what we do. But... Um, um, but um, actually, I was somewhat concerned when I when I um, looked at this event that um, I think we we have very little to disagree about, and certainly nothing um, that uh, Gina said that that I want to try and. Um, attack or disagree with. But obviously, um, since she knows much more about the brain than I do, I'll be coming from a different direction and, um, I suppose, trying to provide a rather broader context in which one might think about this issue. So here's my um, basic summary of the points that I, I want to just try and put across in 15 minutes now. First of all, gender is a developmental outcome. Uh, we often tend to think of the world, and this is a very standard philosophical idea, of, of there being certain kinds of things in the world, they have certain kinds of properties. And this can be quite a problematic, actually this is my uh, big interest at the moment, is trying to think more in terms of the world as made up of processes that um, develop and change. And um, in particular, I think this is how we should think of people. I'll just say a word about that in a moment. Um, and development, once we start to think about ourselves as developing processes rather than things with a given set of properties, um, we immediately see that development is a process that's influenced by a huge variety of, of factors. These are um, interdependent. Uh, they, they affect one another's effects on the process, and none of them, I think, has a fully predictable effect independent of the others. So whenever we try and look at the effects of certain kinds of developmental inputs, whether it be genes or um, social environment or um, um, socioeconomic status, whatever, um, the, we, we tend to, to, to look at an abstraction from all the other things that are affecting this process. So this comes to something that I think probably you should be fully convinced of by now from uh, Gina's presentation. The gendered brain is a product of a gendered society as much as, uh, as it is a cause of gender differences. Okay. Now let me just start with a very general question, which is obviously, um, you know, in some ways underlies how we should think about this question, what is a human? Now, I think that when we first ask this, we sometimes tend to think of, you know, some grown-up person, carnivorous, um, no, but, but, I mean, maybe not necessarily this one, but um, some kind of, of adult, developed human being. And, of course, this is about gender, so we can have another example. Um, also, obviously, carnivorous, perhaps um, fish-eating. But, um, but what I want to suggest is that there's a much better way of... Oh, dear, sorry, the bottom's come off this, don't um, ...of of thinking about humans, as I've suggested, is we should remember something we all know, that we're processes. We're now all, in this room, as far as I can see, adult humans, but we were once babies, children, 
and some of us already, um, others of us in the future, will become older and eventually other people will take our places in the world. But this is, this is a cycle, uh, and this is fundamentally what we're like. One of the, one of the crucial things, uh, I think, in, in moving from thinking of a world made of things to a world made of processes is we, in a sense, change the question we ask. When we think of a world of things, we tend to assume that they stay the same, other things being equal. When we start thinking of processes, we think, what is it that maintains their stability. I sometimes like to contrast a picture of a, a mountain and a whirlpool. You know, a mountain, we think, nothing happens, it'll still be there in a thousand years. A whirlpool, if nothing happens, it'll immediately cease to exist because it's the motion of the parts that keeps us going. We're much more like whirlpools. You know, there's billions of things going on in your body during this, um, you know, during this lecture, and if they stopped happening, you would be dead. And so we actually have to ask the question, and it comes in two ways, talking about humans. One is how, at a moment, we stay as reasonably stable entities in the world, and this is a very complex task. But we also have this trajectory around this circle of states. And it takes a great many things going right, a great many things happening to make us follow these paths. And, um, and some of them I mentioned, genes, parental care, I wrote at the bottom, you can't see, material and social environment, and much more. I've highlighted these two words because a lot of the story that I want to you know, um, disagree with tends to start with anchoring all this stuff in genes that always do the same thing, always produce the same result. And one of the most interesting things in recent biology is realizing that genes are just as much parts of interactive processes. The genome is something constantly stabilized by um, things that it does, things that are done to it. And what it is changes as it interacts with the outside world. Even social environment not only changes the brains, but it changes the genes. So everything is part of this dynamic process. Okay. So sex gender, can I say, is so we look at these human processes and we have a roughly bifurcating life cycle length developed process, developmental process. So we start off with XX, XY genotypes in um, in, in zygotes and we end up with a lot of people, typically heterosexual, normatively gendered men and women. But this is a very long, complex process. Many factors contribute to stabilizing these typical trajectories, genes, hormones, brains, all these things. And there's a great deal of variation along the trajectory. But recalling what I just said, we shouldn't think of these, as, these outcomes as things that just are that way, because that's the kind of thing they are, but as outcomes that are stabilized by all kinds of things that happen. Ways that the processes are pushed down these particular pathways. And of course, as we also know, many people end up on a wide spectrum of positions at the end of these pathways. So, um, just, just, and we've actually seen um, something a little like this, just, just to you know, get a sense, it starts right at the beginning. Right at the beginning, it's a process with all kinds of variables, 
rough means that people move down, uh, or the human embryos move around in this case, this kind of gradual um, divergence of this process. And it's quite nice to see these pictures remind ourselves that it's not, we sometimes, again, look at the end product and it's different kinds of things, but it's actually a quite subtle differentiation of the process down two directions. Um, and then there's a crucial thing that happens that with a fair amount of developmental bifurcation at birth, and at that point we make a social decision pretty much one way or the other. And though this is beginning to change, it's still often the case that if we can't quite make up our mind which box to put the uh, baby in at the moment of birth, we send it off to we make a decision and send it off to surgeons to make it look more like the the right kind of thing that fits in the box. I mean, just the most classic point at which you can see the processes, in this case social interventions, that maintain these two pathways that lead to these two um, typical events that have this very normative element that, that that's how we think we have such conceptions of what we think the endpoints of these processes should be. And of course, uh, this is the, the point where we think maybe it's all biology, um, but after that, as we know, the male and the female pathways are guided by, by very systematically different um, social inputs. And even if we you know, maybe, you know, don't, maybe think we're trying to um, protect our children from these social inputs, they're everywhere, and we'd be very surprised if we didn't get some effect from them. Just one nice example of the kind of social processes I have in mind as a lovely experiment. This is actually a, an artist who went to um, very small children's objects and sorted them out and made these photographs. And there's a whole array of these, of, of boys and girls, and the things that they, the clothes they have, the toys they play with. And as you see, they're exposed to a somewhat different environment. It's, um, it's, I think, irresistible to mention at this point, as some of you may know, 100 years ago, pink was a variety of red and was um, a paradigmatically masculine color. So um, this is not, it's not a natural, it's not somehow in the um, Y chromosome that you like blue, and otherwise pink is just uh, a very plastic bit of social uh, culture. Okay, uh, slightly distressingly, um, a bit older on, one can still see the same uh, differentiations being imposed on slightly older people. Uh, okay, so, um, so um, just a kind of, again, a philosophical point about this process that I want to go on about. Um, I think when we provide these these cuts through, we look at you know, people, adults or children or something and we describe them, we have to remember that we're providing a snapshot of these developmental processes. It's fine to do that. There could be reasons why we're very interested in what goes on at a certain point in development. It helps understand the developmental process. But there's always a huge danger that this is very misleading. We start thinking of kinds of things that are just the way they are, as opposed to just a particular point in a process. 
And, of course, the same thing goes not just for snapshots of people, but snapshots of bits of people. And I'm sorry to say, here's a picture you've seen before. <laughs> it's actually the first hit you get on Google Images if you type in gender and brain. Uh, so it obviously um, attracted a lot of attention. Um, and, um, again, you've really heard. I just, I guess, just as a perfect example of what can go wrong when you look at these snapshots you think of these are kind of things this is the male brain, this is the female brain and you somehow forget that this is something that has a history, is part of a process uh, at a certain point and of course um, these histories are, as I've said, very different. There are biological differences, there are social differences, there are all kinds of differences. It would be extraordinary if one didn't see any differences in the brain, as if the brain was somehow the one thing that stayed fixed as everything else changed in the developing, developing um, animal. So, uh, and the interpretation of this, I mean, you know, it's subtle in a way because you know maybe men's brains are wired more for you know, perception and coordinated actions, but that's not because that's just how men are. That's because men have spent more time learning to do the kinds of things they're being tested for. So, back to just the key points, just in the light of what I've been saying. Gender is a developmental outcome. It's not the defining characteristics of a kind of thing. And the so-called wiring of the brain is equally a developmental outcome. Development is a process influenced by multiple factors. Again, the wired brain is a product of these multiple factors, not something genetically determined. And the gendered brain, then, is a product of a gendered person, I think. I'm missing from mine, too. Um, okay. Um, I was asked... Oh, God, this has got rather squashed. Uh, how much... Am I running out of time? That's okay. Well, okay. Um, I'm sorry, this has got... Uh, the, the slide's got a little contracted. I, should, I suppose I shouldn't have pictures. Um, they don't really do anything. Okay. So, um, I was... <laughs> Uh, I was asked to say, I think in, in the description of this, it says we could say something about hardwiring, so I just want to reflect momentarily on this concept. I think it's an unfortunate metaphor. Brains and computers are very different things, and clearly we're appealing to all kinds of computer, um, you know, kind of parallels that I think can be very unfortunate. Um, it tends to see be behavior as... as um, determined by the brain as, as a kind of some kind of um, almost kind of mechanical response to the environment. And I think one of the things that, that importantly ignores is that part of our developmental processes are constructing environments, changing the environments in ways that change what happens to our brains. So we actually create environments that we try to create environments that make us feel ways we want to feel. Um, finally, I guess the, the other point I wanted to bring in here, again, um, a, very much an echo of what Gina was saying, is the importance of the idea of plasticity. And the point I think I wanted to really stress here is the plasticity of the brain is an, a very powerful example of something that is 
very characteristic of life generally. We tend to no, we tend to be very impressed by the ability of life to produce. Um, the same kind of organisms again and again, you know, cats carry on producing kittens and cows produce calves and seeds produce the same kind of tree. We sometimes don't look so closely at the, the, the variety of outcomes, which, as we, we should remember, because we know that that's what makes evolution possible, that actually cats don't produce identical kittens, they produce a whole range of different kittens. And there are different ways plants, gardeners will know that plants grow in all kinds of different ways according to how you feed them, how much light there is, what the competition is around them. And I, I tend to think that the most interesting difference between plants and animals is that animals structure their, their plastic response to the environment around behavior. Plants do it around growth because I guess they don't have nervous systems. Anyhow, plasticity is an absolutely characteristic part of development of organisms. Um, so uh, I want to give an example. This is not just an, ex an excuse for a cheesy cartoon. It was such a wonderful example I came across about this because you often, people often wonder and are concerned about the effect of, of the, the sea of pornography our children grow up in. And I think they're probably right to be concerned. But the most extraordinary thing I encountered was a study suggesting that people who were exposed to a great deal of pornography actually get to the point where they become sexually excited by the sight of a computer. Now, I, I guess it's, it's strange, but perhaps not very surprising. We probably shouldn't have given up on our, you know, sort of Skinnerian, uh, you know, kind of uh, behavioral psychology as fully as some of us have. Um, but I think it's a wonderful example because people who are looking for, for these sort of gendered differences generally look at sexual behavior and so on. And this is just an example. Even this, though, it's very canalized. It has, goes down normal developmental pathways, can go in very strange directions. So um, I just want this was a summary which is half cut off of what I wanted to say. There is no reason to think, this is why this matters, that changing the processes by which genders are differentiated will be easy, but there's still less reason to think it will be impossible. We are flexible processes susceptible to a lot of of interventions and I'll just end and I would like to just end with a thanks um, and a thanks especially to uh, Professor Carl Jurassi often known as uh, rather strangely I suppose as a title the father of the birth control pill um, who endowed the um, the chair that uh, Jonathan mentioned that I had the privilege to occupy at Cambridge a year ago and who sadly died a few months ago. So um, I would take the opportunity to acknowledge um, his many achievements. So... Um, <coughs> Thank you.
Okay, thank you, John. Uh, as I explained at the beginning of the event, we'll now have a, a, a discussion among the panel uh, before opening it up to questions from the audience. Um, clearly, a lot of conciliance <laughs> already going on um, between the two of you. I better see if I can try and find some, some points of disagreement um, as the basis for discussion. I mean, both, both of you clearly... Um, fairly sceptical about the idea of innate uh, gender differences in thought and in behaviour. Uh, so I wonder, what, what would it take to convince you that there are such things? Is it, is it for example, that, that you think brain scans could not possibly provide the right kind of evidence to convince us of innate gender differences? Uh, or do you think it is potentially the right kind of evidence, but it's just not pointing the right way at the moment? Well, I think, you'd, first of all, you need a whole lot more. The first thing you'd need to do, I think, is understand what innate means a bit better. Um, I'm sorry, yes. So I think the first thing you'd have to do to answer that question is have um, a, a good understanding of what innate means. And this is a very um, obscure concept in many ways. Um, I mean, on the face of it, it seems to be about what properties things have at birth. And clearly the things we're talking about are not properties of newborn babies. I guess the interesting interpretation of innate is something like developmentally canalized, which I guess means something like a developmental outcome that will happen regardless of however much you manipulate the environment, that somehow internally the child will grow that way and will end up with a certain set of behavioral dispositions. I guess the empirical evidence would be that certain kinds of empirical dispositions are insensitive to um, any kind of differences in environment. Um, and so, so, I mean, I could be convinced, I suppose, by that kind of evidence... Uh, it'd be hard to provide it, but um, and I don't anticipate it being shown. It, but um, it could. It's not impossible. It would just be a different kind of organism. I, I guess my answer would be a classic sort of academic answer. It depends what you mean or what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. In terms of what you're trying to prove, I obviously took a, a quite extreme stance, and. There are certainly innate, there are sex differences um, in brain structures, and there are some sex differences in behaviours, and it's quite clear that some of those are related to genetic factors, and I think that's, that's probably important to remember. Um, so I, I do think there are some innate sex differences. It's when we're using the term gender which brings with it a whole package of, of something which develops within society, um, which causes me a problem. Uh, I mean, the question you posed to me originally was, what sort of evidence would it take to convince you that innate gender differences do not exist? Well, evidence that something doesn't exist, I think, is a bit of a problem <laughs> um, for philosophers, certainly. Um, but I, I think we're always pushing the boundaries. I mean, certainly talking to some people saying, why are neuroscientists still faffing around with these issues of gender in the brain? The 18th century people were talking about it, laughed out of court. Um, but I think the key thing is, as the more we discover about behaviour, the brain, uh, the more we can revisit old questions uh, and look at those and challenge them. So I guess, I guess maybe, maybe just, just a very quick point on that. I mean, of course, um, I, this, I guess, echoes the question about gender and sex. Um, I would not take evidence that 
the brains differ between men and women in a systematic way as evidence for innate gender. That's innate sexual differences in the brain. The question is whether the brains um, somehow produce systematically different behavior. And that seems to me by no means to follow. Do you know, I mean, do, do you share the skepticism John expressed about the very notion of hardwiring? Um, I mean, is it right to think that's a fairly standard notion in neuroscience, or is it actually not? It's, it's a concept which we've moved away from more, the more we understand about how the brain can be changed, e- even momentarily. Um, and the kind of differences that people have studied, they're, they're different in different cultures, in different contexts, in the same people in different contexts. So it, it would seem hard to say that the back of that is something which is, which is unchangeable. Um, so the, the concept of hardwiring is, is, is a bit like something which is fixed and, and impossible to change. I think, um, to be fair to the other side, there is a suggestion that that, that there's a kind of inbuilt pattern which may change slightly, but what mm. people who would insist on innate sex differences would say, but that's the bit that's innate and that's the bit... I mean, maybe there are sex differences in plasticity. So maybe we've just shifted the argument mm-hmm. to a slightly different forum and said, oh, well, maybe males, um, depending on the environment, their brains will change differently from females. I don't think we can answer that question yet. Uh, I mean, I took, I took it to be your view from the talk that um, there, are, there are differences between genders um, predicted by genes to some extent, but when we look at those distributions, we see that they're, they're very, very small differences. I mean, I was wondering if, the, if the, the differences having a very, very small magnitude might still be compatible with them having very significant societal um, implications. For, I mean, for example, something that gets put about sometimes by by sort of people who think there shouldn't be more women in science and things like that. It's this idea that, okay, the, the differences between the distributions in cognitive abilities are, are really, really tiny. You know, tiny difference in the means or tiny difference in the variances. But when you look at the effects those differences have on, on the, the, the composition of the people at the very, very, very high end of the distribution, you see that those, that tiny difference in the mean or the variance can make a huge difference to the, the composition of the people in the top 1%. Do you have any sympathy for that? Uh, no, in a short answer. <laughs> I think if the tiny differences were fixed, wherever you looked, across time, different cultures, different genders, or as, say, one group got greater access to education, financial um, stability, etc., then you could say, if, despite everything we've thrown at it, these things stay, then I'd start to say, this is something that we should take seriously. Because that goes back to the idea that if, if actually you're unable to do something, you really shouldn't expose yourself to a situation where it's demanded of you and your capacity is, is less than it should be. But I've not seen any evidence of, of the kind of differences that we're interested in, mm-hmm. uh, which haven't changed. I mean, there are quite marked differences. It, it, the, the, um, Shades of Grey paper actually identifies that there are very marked differences in, in uh, ho- choice of hobbies, 
um, watching porn, shopping, for mm -hmm. example. Um, I had somebody in an audience like this got up and said, I don't know how you can deny there are sex differences. There is no single incidence of a woman stealing men's underwear off a washing line. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought with opponents like that, you don't need too many supporters. But um, So yeah, there are differences, but I think the point is... Um, how, if they're not stable, and, and we really haven't seen any evidence that none of these can be changed, then um, I, I, I need to be convinced. I mean, this, this just really, really points to my worries about the concept of innate, I mean, and, and how you show it, because they say you, you, can, you start out with those, those overlapping bell curves to, to try and demonstrate that that is something that is... Um, insensitive to any manipulation of the social environment um, is um, enormously challenging. And, and I guess all the, all the kind of little bits of evidence about the plasticity of little bits of behavior to little changes or to particular factors makes it incredibly unlikely that somehow that little difference in the mean of the distribution is something that you're never going to change whatever else you change. It's not impossible but it just seems really unlikely. And I, can I just add also that I think the con it's because of the consequences of believing in those where you get books which say why boys learn differently mm -hmm. and people espousing certain types of education as well as you know telling the government not to waste their money on getting women to be mm -hmm. scientists. And I think um, that, that's, what, that's what worries me. If it was just a kind of academic argument and you could go round in circles and go back under your scanner and forget it. But, but it's actually uh, really affecting people. And, of course, we're into the self-fulfilling prophecy. If you've got girls believing that they're not as good at maths, they don't do maths, and they don't have female role models who do maths, etc. And so those differences are sustained mm -hmm. not because they're innate, but because what society And even done. just the awareness, just being told that women aren't as good at maths makes girls less good at maths. I mean, that, that's, that's a kind of well-established well part of the, the and plasticity. The yes, of course. <laughs> And we've so far focused heavily on, um, on evidence from neuroscience, sort of neuroscientific data. I wonder if you have any views on, on the sort of other sources of data people might try to draw on in order to support hypotheses about innate sex differences, people like Simon Baron-Cohen, Melissa Hines, studies, um, these sort of high-profile studies of rhesus monkeys, for example, trying to show um, <laughs> sex-type differences in toy choice in, in populations of rhesus monkeys. I mean, do you think that, um, that that sort of evidence from outside of neuroscience and perhaps also outside of the human species, I mean, does it bear on this, on human gender differences or are there limitations to what that can show? Can we start with, um, with Gina? And okay. Um, monkeys. <laughs> I was in a Horizon programme recently when they proved that men are different from women by throwing a whole load of toys into um, a monkey colony and the boy monkeys picked up trucks and the girl monkeys... <laughs> picked up dolls um, and you know why are we bothering it's proved because the animals do it and they haven't been exposed to stereotypes have they um, then, then clearly these are innate differences um, I think I think animal studies with respect to behaviour forget that animals have a culture and a society and are exposed to, to different roles um, within their own um, parameters not, not necessarily compared to humans. I think what Jonathan was referring to was uh, certainly a lot of the 
um, the work looking at prenatal exposure to prenatal testosterone, the idea that the developing fetus um, is exposed right from the beginning is exposed to a, a different environment. And if you look at levels, prenatal levels of testosterone and measure them with postnatal um, uh, measures of, of, of visuospatial skills, for example, then um, there's a clear association. Association. The way in which people read that is that it proves, it proves a cause. If there's a correlation, then they somehow interpret it as a cause. I think the, the hormonal stuff is, the hormonal work shouldn't say stuff in a kind of dis, dismissive way, apologies. Um, the hormonal research is really important to, to try and unpack um, what, what is happening uh, it, pre, prenatally, because the kind of arguments I'm involved in and we're involved in is that the, the moment the child is born, and in fact before, now that you can actually tell the sex of a child long before it's born, um, then there's a really nice cartoon I've come across of somebody doing a scan and informing the father, showing the picture of the fetus reading a shoe sale catalogue, saying, it's a girl. Um, so these kind of expectations are imposed from birth, and, and maybe the kind of hormonal environment is a better uh, test of, of what we're looking at. But all of the hormonal work also shows the same thing, that, that you get tiny little differences which can be affected by the environment in which the individual finds him, him or herself. Uh, testosterone levels vary as a function of, of, of whether or not the father is a, the main caregiver, etc. So I think the same sort of arguments uh, apply. Well, I just make, I mean, I, I agree with um, all that, but, but I just make one more point about the animal studies. Um, I mean, supposing that the, there's nothing wrong with the animal studies, somehow have control for all the culture, it's really true that if you give you know, boy monkeys and girl monkeys toys, the boy monkeys will pick up the trucks and the girl monkeys will pick up the dolls. What exactly does this show? So it's supposed to show that somehow, what is somehow that it's natural for boys to have toys. Well, they're not monkeys, so I'm not sure what that means. But, but remember, when we were talking about innateness and trying to figure out what innateness meant, the only thing at least I can make sense of is innateness means developmental invariance. So supposing there is some kind of you know, culture-free environment, whatever that could possibly mean for us, in which the boys grow up with their trucks and become truck drivers, and the girls become nurses and whatever. I mean, there's a lot of culture. So what it already sees there's not much sense in it. But the fact that in some hypothetical cultural light state uh, this is the trajectory even if that's true doesn't show this is developmentally invariant and in fact it shows very little about what the range of possibilities are in different cultural circumstances there's, there's wonderful um, sort of classic work on, on different kinds of rats that in some circumstances one genetic strain of rat is, looks really stupid and then you train it in a different environment and it's much smarter than the wild type rats, the, the more common type of rats and it makes the point that uh, you cannot just say, here's the natural environment, here is some privileged set of environment, and in this case you get these developmental trajectories. It may be that in most developmental trajectories, you know, the boys you know, at a certain point ditch the trucks and start looking for 
dolls. You know, I mean, we just it doesn't tell us anything that we should take as the as a concept of innateness. If this means, regardless of what context you provide, you still get the same outcome. We still have to decide what kind of outcomes we would like, or what kind of range of outcomes, or what kind of influences we think it's appropriate to put. Um, and, and there's really nothing about this kind of, of experiment that tells us anything about the limits of the possibilities for these outcomes. Okay, I wonder if we could move on to some of the, um, the normative issues that you mean your, your talks raised. I mean, particularly yours, John, there was this suggestion at the end that no reason in principle why we can't change the process, the social processes that shape gender. I mean, are you, are you intending in that to go as far as to say we should be trying to work towards a society without gender? I think that's, a, I mean, I think that's um, a huge question that I'm not going to... Um, but but I, so, so let me, I mean, I guess this is just where I was with the last point. I think the important thing is we don't know in some kind of a priori way the limits of the possible sorts of societies we could have. Now, and I also at the same time want to make very clear that I don't think this just means we can have whatever kind of society we want. We, we don't know nearly enough about how people and societies develop to be you know, absolutely confident about what changing the parameters will do. But we do have a lot of evidence and we do have a lot of normative discussions about how we want societies to be. And I guess a fairly strong normative cons- consensus in some strata of some societies is that other things being equal, we'd like the same range of possibilities for um, men and women. And that's something we, we reasonably can look at Features of our that we we construct in our environment, schools and so on, and and you know kind of the way we we deal with discrimination and so on that are intended to increase the possibility of that kind of social outcome. I think we just have to be very um, open-minded about what's possible. Not, I mean, obviously, just just kind of crazily just change everything without some evidence for what. Um, the effects are going to be, but we should realize we are very plastic and there are all kinds of different ways human societies can work out and we need to, with some caution, try and talk about what kind of society we want to be in and try and get there and indeed talking about what sort of society we want to be in is the sort of thing that changes people's brains and... Um, the society without gender. I suppose for me, it's whether or not gender is a useful concept. And if it's become a confusing concept and a concept which um, blinds us to other useful uh, comparisons, then a society without gender could, could be a, a big step forward. Um, <laughs> Sometimes people criticise me and say, look, you're saying that women aren't that different from men in terms of all the particular skills that you've been looking at. That's undermining women trying to get a better place in society by saying women bring a particular skill to the table. You know, David Cameron needs, you know, however many more women it is in his front bench because he hasn't got any. And then you think, well, actually, the trouble is, why do you need to know somebody's gender? If you want to know if somebody's empathic, why don't you just find out how many people, you know, that somebody's more or less empathic? If David Cameron's 
um, front bench needs more empathic people, then look for more empathic people. Don't just say, oh, those pink people over there, they're empathic. We'll just bung some of them on the front bench and that'll solve the problem. Because, of course, it won't. And then everybody will say, well, what happens when you uh, appoint um, those supposedly empathic people? So I think, I think it's, it's something we need to look at quite carefully. And I have actually had serious discussions talking about it would be great if we could have a, a, a phase of neuroscience research where people don't look at the gender, where they actually say what we're really interested in is this aspect of behaviour, let's have a look at how well people score on it, let's see how we can change it and how it develops or, or etc. And I, th- I, think, I think that would be quite interesting to do. I mean, an interesting sort of thought experiment. It would never work because getting somebody to tick a box as to whether they're male or female is great and you can always shove that in as another independent variable in the study that you're, you're carrying out. Um, so I, I, I think... Um, I think a society without gender, without mm. reference to gender as the, the prime box you tick in order to know what something's going to be like, could be useful. Well, could I just add one thought to that? I mean, I suppose I would say rather than say, you know, we, we want a society without gender and that's a norm that we're going to produce because we don't know how to do that, maybe in a sense the normative task is denormativizing gender. Right. What we really want to to, uh, to to do is get away from any arguments of the sort because you're a woman or because you're a man, you ought to do this or that. And, and, I, and my guess is that if we got away from normative gender, gender would at least spread across such a wide range of different ways of, of living and being that pretty soon it would be a very uninteresting concept. So, so I think may, maybe the normativity comes with just in a negative way rather than a positive way. Mm. I mean, one last question here about the the norms that you think should apply to to scientists working on on gender. I mean, do you and, and indeed other controversial issues. I mean, do you think that? We've seen in these cases how these results get taken by science journalists and sort of blown out of all proportion. I mean, what? Do, I mean, do you think the scientists are partly to blame for that? And I mean, what, what can they what can they do better to ensure that the science is is, is more accurately reported? Um, well, egotistically, I'd say read that paper that I've written with Cordelia Fine. It's actually a toolbox to say. Have a look at what, why you're asking the question. Bear in mind that you're looking at entangled brains, that you're uh, looking at uh, is the skill you're interested in, has it been shown to vary as a function of the context, etc. So I think there is, uh, there is a responsibility on scientists to be very careful with this sort of research. Partly because it's good science anyway. I mean, now you shouldn't just be saying, oh, I'm going to take a thousand brains this study was you know because it studied nearly a thousand brains must be right all they asked about those brains were the age and sex not even (laughs) years in education occupation socioeconomic status not even all those things we already know are important so I think that is something that scientists should really acknowledge Uh, but also to be careful I mean the, 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 the actual reporting of that study, partly it got hyped because of an interview that the um, scientists gave to the press where they really over-egged what it was they'd found. 
And as you say, it, it, it's, it's one in a way. Its mm-hmm. impact is huge. It figured on the Horizon programme that I was in, mm-hmm. even though it had been shown to be wrong. So. Well, I guess I, I might be just a, a little bit um, less conciliatory than that. I mean, I think, yes, there's, um, there, there's a lot of responsibility because I think, um, I think if you're doing, if you're publishing this kind of research, you must know that there's a good chance that it'll make a lot of splash and be interpreted in lots of ways that I hope you know as the scientist are entirely misguided. So I think there's a, there's a lot of irresponsibility. I would just perhaps say in defense of, of scientists doing this that, um, of course, there are huge pressures that they're subject to. I mean, as we all know, working in universities, we have um, you know, outreach officers and impact officers and communications departments, press offices, you know, um, a lot of people who will reward us very well for getting attention. And the temptation to do so is is very strong. And the possibility for doing so, if you have results that could be interpreted by the Daily Mail as, as confirming all their readers' best fears, um, are very strong. So... Um, so I, I think it's it's a deep problem going, you know, all the way up to public policy on higher education and um, probably beyond. Okay, uh, thanks to both Gina and John. I'd now like to invite questions from the audience. Um, there will be someone with a with a roving microphone. Um, please wait for the microphone to get to you before asking your question. And let's start over over here, uh, the third row on the left here. Um, uh, my question is, um, I was wondering how both of your disciplines treated uh, or studied and researched and which conclusions um, were reached in terms of non-binary traditional um, things both in the Western society, whether it be transgendered people who, um, if their brains were studied and how, you know, from the philosophical perspective, how you would see their process as having gone through a very normative lifestyle and they were treated as, you know, little boys who then decided not to be men. And also in direct, in direct relation to that question, if these studies were also conducted in cultures that don't even practice binary gender categories um, that have either three or more genders or in general just don't really study, uh, don't really practice categories at all in terms of gender. Okay. Um, So I think it's, I mean, it's very interesting um, to look at the actual diversity that sort of takes apart naive assumptions about, you know, there just being these two kinds, because, of course, right from the outset when we have um, these different uh, genotypes that we don't always talk about, like the XXY, the XO, and so on, um, nothing is actually a strict dichotomy at any point. There are always these differences, and clearly this results sometimes in huge... Um, 
discordance between you know actual people and the the very normative roles that they're supposed to fall in. Now, I guess I, 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 the, the the issue of transgenderedness um, is one I get to be very cautious about because. It's obviously something that is such a powerful issue for people involved with it, and it is a very complex issue philosophically. I mean, I guess one, one concern I have is that a natural view is, in a certain sense, that people who feel the, um, the, the need to transgender themselves to some degrees are victims of the normative categories. I mean, if you only have two options, then, then you know, and you feel very uncomfortable and unhappy in the option that you've been assigned, then maybe that only the most very dramatic um, move can move you somewhere better. If one had a more plastic space of gender possibility, it might be that some of the things that people are led to do in transgendering might seem um, less necessary. But but again, this is something I, I only talk about very, very speculatively because I, I need to you know, really um, know a lot more about the experiences of transgender people to um, say anything very definitive about that. But it's, it's certainly philosophically, it's very interesting to see the diversity of, of possible ways that gender actually does play out in the little interact, you know, sort of interland between the sort of what we perceive as these main channels of development. I think the paper I referred to by Daphne Joel, which talks about 3G sex, she very much uh, and very eloquently addresses those kind of issues, and it comes back to the idea that even um, where we've accepted dichotomies and saying, okay, right at the very beginning there are dichotomies, but then after that um, we're looking at trays, we're looking at uh, dimensions. Um, The the issue of, of... transgendered individuals actually answers that and says that's because as, as John has said we're trying to put you know only give people two alternatives and you know the question is boy or girl straight from the beginning and it's clear that even at that level we shouldn't be looking at things in terms of categories it should be dimensional and I think um, I always get quite cautious because it says <coughs> studying trans- transgender people is very illuminating because it sounds as though they're a kind of interesting experiment, which of course is not what, what the, the message that you want to convey. Um, but I think it's very interesting also when you look at sort of where you assume that absolute differences exist. You can always find examples where there are exceptions. You, you mentioned that the societies with more than, um, more than two genders. It's also a case of looking at different parenting styles. Um, anthropologists have looked at uh, hormonal changes in, in fathers who currently do most of the childcare as opposed to similar kind of cultures where the fathers don't do the childcare. So that, that there are... It's almost so we should actually stop thinking about a and B and categories. And, and once we do that, this comes back to the concept of maybe if we got away from your either one thing or another, we could actually really start to understand individual differences. Does that answer your question? 
Okay, let's have the next question from the middle of the, of the sixth row here, um, and then we'll come down to the front row. Can I ask everyone to please keep both questions and answers as short as possible uh, in order to maximise the, the number of questions we can fit in and the time remaining? I'll try to keep this very short. If the, le- if the discussion was the other way around, the brain and gender, would you not be talking about the need for every human brain of whichever sex to know the sex of the brains that they're interacting with? And that, of course, reflects in the fact that if you are employing people and you don't know what sex they are that is going to make quite a difference Uh, but it also means that you can't talk to them because usually somebody's voice will give away their sex so you have to deal with the fact that people want to know and can neuroimaging indicate the unhappiness of a brain that's being asked to deal, to relate to somebody else without knowing which sex they are. Uh, Very briefly, neuroimaging has looked at interactions between individuals, um, not as far as I know with that particular question in mind. Um, I I think in terms of a brain needing to know the gender of the brain they're interacting with, I think I'd want to know why. If you want to know if some, it comes back to if you want to know if somebody's empathic or um, has similar interests, there are other ways of finding that out. And maybe it's misleading just to know that that person is male or female because you might already be thinking, oh, well, they'll like this and not like that, and you could be absolutely wrong. Um, so I think if the question was the other way around, I think the issues, in fact, because everything's so entangled, it almost is the other way around. Just very quickly. I mean, I, I guess all the the research that shows that um, people judging CVs um, will will tend to rank applicants for jobs substantially and systematically lower if they have a female than a male name suggests that there are a lot of contexts in which it would be better if the brains didn't know the gender of the brains they were communicating with. I mean, it seems to me they should, just as Gina said. I mean, it's a question of why they want to know. I mean, if I'm looking for a, you know, a, somebody to reproduce with, I should certainly want to know what gender they are. <laughs> but, um, but, if, but if I want to employ them to do a, you know, a job, then I want to know whether they're good at the job or not. Mm. Okay, next question was the very front here. Thank you. I think I should, <clears throat> I should tell you that I actually um, interview overlooked and overshadowed women and that um, Florence Nightingale and her um, Medal for Mathematics would have been quite a good role model, but it's not something that's often mentioned about her. Um, Cordelia Fine, I thought, really (laughs) dealt with this question when she said, why would you want to know the differences between people? And it's in the first chapter, and she says, an amazing individual, which I would think is what you're looking at. The idea of an ungendered society seems to me bizarre, because I'm aware that Jocelyn Bell-Bernal who did not get the Nobel Prize because she was a student or old woman. Um, and Maggie Adairn Pocock, Susan Greenfield, are all working very actively to see that women are getting a fair break in terms of being encouraged into science and not blocked. The, the numerous women I have interviewed have been blocked. Why do you want to be a surgeon? You're going to be a missionary, one of the first women surgeons ever. And I think the word that's being avoided here is equality, perhaps, and prejudice. There's just so much... 
um, out there in terms of barriers holding women back. And not just women, I mean other aspects of diversity, which is something that I work with. And it seems to me that this environment, this country, is a very masculine, mechanistic, militaristic society as opposed to a caring, creative, conciliatory. And whether you call those a masculine culture versus a, a feminine culture, which is not to say that there aren't men like that or women like that, but that's the way I approach it, and I feel as if I've come in from another planet. I'm sorry. Okay, uh, John. Um, <laughs> um, I agree with most of what you said. I'm not sure that there's a question. Well, okay, so I, I certainly, um, certainly wasn't avoiding them, I hope. Um, I, I, I guess I didn't. I thought they were rather implicit in some things that I said. Um, but but I, um, the question, I guess it comes again to this question, whether equality is just a predetermined goal that you work towards as equality of outcome, which we know is, um, is one that, that gets a whole lot of, of um, pushback or whether one tries to just remove barriers, open up possibilities, um, combat claims for the, the, the necessity of certain kinds of division. And, and I think all of those movements will lead one, I don't know to equality, but to people able to choose the developmental pathways that they want. And I suspect that statistically that will be look a lot like equality. But I think that, that removing the barriers that you talked about is very important. And I think one support for those barriers is the kind of interpretation of scientific results that we've been talking about and opposing because nothing makes it harder to remove the barriers than people being convinced they're just natural, inevitable, innate, determined, um, and nothing could be further from the truth. So um, I certainly um, don't don't want to avoid talking about equality, but I think it's um, it's 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 deeply interconnected with the whole issue. I, I think I'm, I'm quite surprised by, by what you took out of, of what we'd said. Um, I mean, Norman Doidge, for example, the book The Brain That Changes Itself. I, I, Last week you were talking about Okay. So, I mean, I, I, I would, I would have um, certainly mentioned him uh, as somebody who espoused the same sort of thinking about the fact that, not to take it to the extreme, but, you know, we are what our brains can do and our brains can do brackets just about anything um, and, that, and that was really the message that I was trying to convey. I think that the, the aspect of, of barriers again was about stereotype threats, about demonstrating neuroscientists demonstrating that even people thinking that they're inferior can make them behave in an inferior way etc. And the way in which the gendered environment erects barriers so that the whole toys thing, you know, right from an early age 
girls, for whatever reason, aren't exposed to toys that make them good at constructing things. And further down the line, they find themselves not so good at spatial cognition. It means they don't choose to be engineers, etc., etc. And I genuinely believe that that's the, the, the chain of events. So I'd kind of think that hopefully what we're saying is, is or what, what I felt I was saying, was that this is really important that we understand this because they are genuine barriers, but we can overcome them. Okay, there's a question from the, the second row, right in the middle of the second row. Uh, hi, um, I, my question is kind of multifaceted. So um, I kind of understood yeah, Gina to say that um, there are basic sex differences in brain shape. Um, and I was, uh, was that correct? No. No, okay. <laughs> Never mind. Sorry. I, I can just quickly say size matters. The differences have been found between males and female brains if you actually look at the brains in terms of the size. And male, male brains overall are bigger than female brains because males are overall bigger than females. And the structural differences which have been much disposed about, you know, corpus callosum, etc. If you look at the size of the brain, those differences have arisen from differences in size, not differences in Six. Okay, uh, next question, second row from the back up there. And then, then we'll go over to uh, the, the fourth row up there. Um, thanks. So I, I agree that what you said about processes, people are you know, just humans, they come to become what they are as a reason of a process. Um, but I'm also interested in the limits of plasticity. So one of the things I read was Anna Fausto-Sterling. She says something about um, bones, like bones grow how you use them. After a certain point, though, they set. So if you are a girl who doesn't play sport, as a woman trying to play sport, you might find it really hard. Are there similar limits for the brain? And if so, what can we do to protect against things like that? Probably a question more for you. I mean, um, I think again, it might be interesting if we didn't talk in terms of sex differences. Um, there are differences in different aspects of the brain, the way in which different parts of the brain will respond to experiences. And a bit, I don't know if I'm, I'm kind of. Um, speculating here, but for example the fact that socioeconomic status is much more important than gender. So I think there are um, there are limits to plasticity, but it's not necessarily determined by the, the sex of the brain. Is that is that the question you were asking? No, it's more about um, so having a limit to you can do sports or not by thirties does really affect whether or not you can do it in your life. And I wonder if there's a similar danger that people are not using their brain a certain way. Yes, uh, I mean, I think what we're learning is that it's much, our brains stay plastic for much longer, but it's still the case that, um, to simplify the case, you know, if you don't play with Lego at an early stage, that can have downstream consequences. Um, but I think what's important, and this comes back to the question about barriers, we now know that we can change things throughout our lives. There's a lot of work on, on the ageing brain, which demonstrates that plasticity remains in a way that we were never aware. Clearly, if there's disease, damage, age deterioration, that will impose, impose limits. But that's not necessarily a function of the sex of the brain. It may be a function of the, 
of the environment in which the brain grew up, which may then be determined by the gender. I mean, I take it there's a good deal of variety in the plasticity of plasticity. Yes. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, there's a good deal of plasticity of plasticity, that there are ways of developing people, of educating people, maintaining their education, their, I mean, the maintaining plasticity, which, which we, I don't know. I mean, I guess we could argue, I mean, there are different people who have different views about the desirability of that. I mean, and again, this gets into politics, probably, whether it's good to have a, pl- a population of highly flexible plastic people. <laughs> <laughs> but it seems it's something you could aim to, indeed, I guess. I, mean, I think it would be a very good thing to aim to. Okay, one last question from over here, uh, fifth row. Unfortunately, that's all we'll then have time for. Thank you. Uh, first of all, I just want to thank you because it's um, uh, it's a pleasure to see that you know in neuroscience also we are arriving to um, some sort of uh, support for feminist ideas that have been going on for um, decades. Um, I have a question in terms of plasticity because uh, as far as I understood, you both talked about plasticity in terms of the evolutions or processes in the life cycle. I was wondering if you have um, any data in terms of the evolution in term- from, uh, from different generations to the other. Um, if you can comment on that, that's the first question. And the second is... How much um, is um, how much are the your conclusions uh, actually being used uh, for politicians and policymakers? I was wondering, do they even take your um, you know conclusions into consideration at any point in time right now? Thank you. I mean, I, I, so I didn't quite understand the first question. Could could you just the evolution between? Well, in terms of the evolution, because as far as I understood, you were talking about the life cycle of the, uh, one person. Yeah. So in terms of the evolution of the, you know, from a generation to the other, I was, I was wondering about the idea okay. of plasticity, okay. both yeah, in terms yeah. of the brain and the genes. Okay. Thank you. So, so I, I can comment. I mean, evolutionary plasticity, this is... Um, I think it's a very interesting issue and one where there's a lot of of ideas that circulate about evolution that are, in my view, completely obsolete, i.e. that evolution generally, but human evolution particularly, is somehow... Uh, something that, that can only happen at the rate of, of gene replacement through a whole population. Um, now, certainly in the human case, and let's stick to that, um, behavior, life cycles change vastly more rapidly than that because we change other aspects of the developmental niche much more quickly than we change genes. And, of course, genes themselves can be redeployed. Um, one of the things we're understanding from epigenetic research is that a gene isn't something that just sits there saying, I'm going to have this effect on the phenotype. It's a resource that can be used by the organism in different ways. But even without that, you know, we change our environment. We change the developmental niche by building different kinds of schools or hospitals and, and the developmental cycle is, is different. So um, certainly uh, evolution, I think the question then really is whether evolution is about the rate of evolution and the rate of evolution is highly contested now but I think we're coming to understand that it's much faster than a lot of traditional 
potentially a lot faster than a lot of standard what we call neo-Darwinian models uh, apply. As far as um, what effect um, we have on policymakers, I fear I have very little. So. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, I wrote down epigenetics as well. Um, uh, so I think, yes, there's more evidence. In a way, you, you, 10 years ago, 15, you could probably not get a paper published about epigenetics, and now it's accepted. So the concept of neuroplasticity is much the same. Um, with respect to policy, I mean, I have contributed. There was a report produced um, last uh, last year by an organisation called Science School, which actually was the advert that I had on the end of my, um, uh, of my talk, uh, which was actually uh, informing government ministers about the work that neuroscientists were doing and how important it was to understand the effect of gendering the environment. So we were involved with the Let Toys Be Toys campaign. <laughs> and similarly with education, understanding that um, you could set up barriers to education by not being aware of different learning styles by assuming that everybody, you know, all girls did things this way and all boys did things that way. Whether or not that changes, it depends. We've got an uh, um, election coming up, so, you know, I mean, I know we've got the pink bus. It'd be interesting to know what the use of the pink bus are. Um, so, yeah, I mean, again, it, it engenders argument. Interesting use of the term. Um, but the idea is sometimes... Labelling something as pink in the women's issues puts it to one side. Um, and if you want the policy centre stage and it to be important for everybody, then um, sometimes you need to present it in a different way. OK, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. My, uh, uh, my apologies to anyone who had a question and didn't get a chance to ask it. But let's thank John and Gina for a very interesting session. <laughs>